Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys as you're making your way back. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us before we open up the Word and ask the Lord to, to speak to us and to lead us. Our Holy Father, Lord, I am so grateful that you are faithful, that we can gather and we can sing, great is your faithfulness, and that you are faithful even when we are unfaithful, and that our relationship with you is not some reciprocating relationship but you love us because you loved us. And even while we were enemies waging war against you, you gave yourself for us. You purchased us. You redeemed us. And Lord, you've opened up our eyes. You've called us from the graves. You have made us new. You've exchanged your righteousness for our unrighteousness. And we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, and I do pray that as we open up your word, as we see how you've ministered to your disciples, as you're constantly calling them to believe in you, to trust in you, Lord, can you help us to, to believe in you, to trust in you? Can you help us to see your glory in Scripture? Can you help us to be just overwhelmed by you? Lord, at times that we can't fathom your greatness and your glory, Lord, and at times we get so bogged down by the details, by things we don't understand, that we miss the picture. And that picture is you, Lord. And so can you help us? Can you help me not to get distracted? and get caught up in the weeds and get caught up in the little details, but just to show your glory in this text so that we may behold you, so that we may look to you, so that we may believe in you and trust in you. So come and speak to us, Lord. Holy Spirit, open up our ears, our hearts, illuminate truth to us, convict us of our sins. And for those who do not know you, for those who've not trusted you, for those who do not believe in you, Lord, can you open up your eyes? Can you make yourself known in such a real way that they are following you, trusting you, believing in you, that you are God, that you are the way to God. You are the life of God and the truth of God. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John, uh, John chapter 14, as we're continuing our series uh, through the book of John. And again, what John is trying to show us, he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the way he has been doing it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory. But the way he's doing it now is by showing us how Jesus is receiving glory from the Father. And his ultimate purpose of his writing, and even the purpose of of the sermon today is so that you may believe, whether you're believing for the first time or whether you're believing that you will continue to believe so that you will have life in his name. Now, before we get into the text and really read it, I do think it's important for you, as you're going to underline some key words, notice how many times Jesus says, believe in me. And so as we're going to read it, I want you to observe that. But really what's happening, a little bit of context, is Jesus is preparing his disciples for the reality of his death and the pain of his departure. And so he's ministering to them in this time as he's trying to prepare them. And the only way to prepare them for his death and his painful departure is to give them an understanding and an experience of the gospel. He's trying to strengthen their faith by revealing to them what's going to happen so that when it takes place, it's going to rock their faith. But then they'll be able to think back and say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus tell us that this is going to happen? And by them remembering, in a sense, it will strengthen their faith. And then he is showing them that as dark as this hour might seem, that the darkest moment in human history is when the Son of God is on the cross. It is also the most glorious moment in all of history where God is revealing his full glory. 
And then he gives them an assignment while he is gone. And he tells them, I want you to love one another, not as you have loved yourself, but to love one another as I have loved you. And by this, all the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now today, Jesus continues to encourage his disciples. But what's happening is with the news of his death, the news of his departure, the betrayal of one of them, and the denial of Peter has caused a heavy heart for all of them. They didn't really understand what was happening. They had followed Jesus. They had believed Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. But now things are not going to what they thought they should be going. It's not going to the way what they expected it to be. And so they find themselves with heavy hearts, with troubled hearts, wondering what in the world is happening right now. The thing we signed up for, the thing that we've devoted our entire life for now is coming to an end. What's going to happen to us? And so their hearts are troubled. But what's really interesting is how Jesus ministers to their troubled heart by telling them what to do. Let's look at our text in John chapter 14, verse 1. He says this, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Notice the word believe. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. So let's just stop here and talk about this. What's going on here? Now, obviously, Jesus is heading to the cross. The agony of the cross is waiting for him. John has already indicated to us that Jesus himself is is deeply troubled both in heart and in spirit, also in soul. Yet on the night when the disciples are seeing that Jesus is troubled, that the agony of the cross is coming, you would think that his disciples will, in a sense, be a supporting role in encouraging Jesus and lifting him up and being with him during a time of trouble. But instead, they themselves find them in a troubled heart. And Jesus ministers to them and he encourages them as he addresses their uncertainty and their confusion. But what's really fascinating is what he instructs them to do. He instructs them the way to calm their hearts is to do what? Believe in God and also believe in him. In other words, what we're finding in our text is that the answer to their troubled heart is Jesus. Now, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, if Jesus is speaking the words of God and performing the acts of God, which that's what he's constantly telling us, should he then not be trusted like God himself because he is God? And what he is saying is, I want you in this time of trouble, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe in me because I am the answer to your troubled heart. But then he gives them a reason, the reason why they can believe in him. And so if you're taking notes, the very first reason why they can believe in him or the benefits of believing in him is this, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus' departure is for the disciples' advantage. Jesus' departure is for the disciples' advantage. Now, the disciples are thinking it is a bad thing that Jesus is leaving. Really what Jesus is saying, it is for your benefit, it's for your advantage that I am leaving. And we'll see this in verses 2 to 3. Let's look at verse 2 to 3 again. Here's the benefits for for Jesus' departure and why they can believe in him. Verse 2 says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. So the question is, what does Jesus mean by, in my Father's house are many rooms? If not, I would have told you, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. 
Um, I want to make this as simple as possible so that we can understand it. I think one of the biggest problems when it comes to sometimes us interpreting the scripture is that sometimes when there's metaphors being used, we interpret a metaphor as literal, okay? And so what we have to see is throughout the Bible, uh, that heaven, in a sense, is described in metaphorical terms. It's described as paradise, a garden, a house, a city, a temple. And so when we interpret sometimes these metaphors when it comes to heaven, it's not just one of them, but it's all of them. And what we need to see is we need to really see the big picture of what Jesus is communicating. So I think the simplest way for us to look at what it means that in his father's house are are many rooms, the simplest way is the house refers to heaven, and in heaven are many rooms and many dwelling places. But when we read this verse, I don't think our focus should be on the description of heaven to that of a giant house. So now we go ahead and describe heaven as this giant mansion with plenty of rooms. And then if you were really good and you really served the Lord, you get like the honeymoon suite or the presidential suite. And if you just made it by the skin of your teeth, you're kind of like in a single bedroom closet. Please don't interpret it that way. That is wrong, okay? But here's what we need to look at it. Don't think of this words as him describing heaven to us, but what is he telling us in this metaphor? The point that Jesus is making is not that heaven is a giant house with many fancy rooms, but rather there is an abundance of provision for all of the disciples. In other words, what Jesus is saying, like there is plenty of room for all of my disciples, and that is where I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so when we look at this metaphor, what he's communicating is the abundant provision that Jesus is going to make for us. There is no limited capacity. There's no, I'm sorry, we're full. We kind of closed the hotel until the 21st century, so all those from up, no room for you. But rather, he's saying, it's a big house, many rooms. There is way more space, and I am preparing a place for you. The words, I'm going to prepare a place for you, um, presupposes that a place already exists. In other words, it's not like when Jesus arrives on the scene, now he's going to start building this place, but rather he is preparing the place. And think about it in his life. How is he preparing a place for his disciples? How is he preparing a place for us? He's preparing a place for us and for his disciples by going where? Going to the cross. His death, his burial, His resurrection is what's preparing the place for his disciples and is for us. Which means that if Jesus is going through all of this trouble to prepare a place for them, that means there will be rest to follow. And then he says in in, in verse 3, If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am you may be also. And so here, Jesus' focus is on the comfort to be enjoyed in the presence of God. And again, I I think one of the two mistakes that we make when when we read this, especially this text, we focus on the description of heaven, which we kind of talked about. But then the second mistake I think we make is now we focus on the location of heaven. Where is Jesus taking us? What does the text say? I'm taking you where? To be where? To be with with him. Where's the location? It's him. And and this is the point that that he is making. And and so when we look at the text, these words are not about rooms or mansions, descriptions or location, but rather these words are the ample provision that Christ has made for the people of God to dwell where? In the very presence of God. And so what we can see is that heaven is not primary about a place or a location, but rather about a person. For the supreme glory of heaven is is Jesus. And this is why he encourages them. 
Like it is for your advantage that I'm leaving. I am preparing a place for you and there will be ample provision for all of you and you will be in my presence forever. Now again, think about the disciples here. Troubled hearts. Jesus is leaving them. Everything they signed up for, now they're thinking, what's the point? We're losing all of it. And what is Jesus encouraging them to do? No, believe in me. Trust in me. I'm not abandoning you, but it's for your advantage that I'm leaving you to prepare a place for you. And as I'm preparing a place for you, there will be plenty of provision for you. Rest will follow because you will be living in my presence for all eternity. And because heaven is all about Jesus and the disciples know Jesus, Jesus even says in verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. However, the disciples seemed confused. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And so Thomas, he listens to what Jesus is saying, and really he's interpreting Jesus' words in the most thoughtless of way. Because Thomas, his only focus is he's thinking Jesus is strictly speaking about a location. And if Jesus is going away, he needs to know the address of the location so that he can look it up and go where Jesus is going. But it's not about a location. And this is why Jesus, in a question, gives them the second reason why they can believe in him. Look at the second reason why they can believe in him. Jesus told them, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, why can we believe in Jesus? Because it's for our advantage that he is leaving. He is making ample provision for us and rest will follow in his presence forever. The second reason why we can believe in him is that this, is that Jesus, if you're taking notes, is the way to God because he is the truth of God and the life of God. Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth of God and the life of God. So what does Jesus mean by being the truth of God? Well, Jesus supremely reveals God. He is God's gracious self-disclosure. He is the Word of God made flesh. What Jesus says and does is exclusively given to him by the Father. In other words, all that Jesus says and does is what the Father says and does. For then when Jesus speaks, God speaks. And since God is truth, all that God says is Truth, thus when Jesus speaks the word of God, because everything he says is from God, he only speaks truth. And that's why we can say that Jesus is the truth of God. But he's also the life of God, not the life to God, but the life of God. Jesus is the one who has life in himself. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the true God and eternal life. And it's only because Jesus is the truth and the life can Jesus be the way for others to come to God. The way for his disciples, in a sense, to to, to go to him, to the Father. He is the way that he prepares a dwelling place for all of them. And he is the answer to Thomas's question. Now, when Jesus says that he is the way to God because he's the truth of God and the life of God... What that does not mean is that Jesus is simply blazing a new trail, commanding others to follow the way that he took, nor is it adequate for us to say that Jesus is a way in a sense that we measure all of our performance to the background of Jesus, because what that means is that's just two of a passive role. But rather, Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the one who speaks to those who are in the graves and calls them out of the graves. He is the one who mediates God's truth and God's life, that he is the very way to God, and he alone can say that no one can come to the Father except through me. And that means, if Jesus says it, that means it's impossible to say that one knows God 
while disowning Jesus or knows God and knows nothing about Jesus. It's also impossible to say that Christ is, is one way among many other ways to God. I love this quote by Thomas A. Kempis. He says this, Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, the life true, life blessed, life uncreated. And in verse 7, Jesus says, If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Why? Why? Because everything that Jesus says and does comes from the Father. And at one level, the disciples knew Jesus. But at another level, they did not fully understand Jesus. What they failed to see, what they failed to recognize, was the unity that existed between God the Son and God the Father. And this is why Philip in his confusion says in verse 8, look at what Philip says in verse 8. He says, Lord, said, said Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. In other words, what is Philip asking for? What, what, what Philip is asking for is asking for an immediate display of God. Like for Philip and, and many people throughout human history have rightly understood there can be no higher experience, no greater good than seeing God as he is, unimaginable splendor, transcendent glory. He's asking the very same thing that Moses pleaded with the Lord. And what did Moses on the mountain pleaded with the Lord? Show me your glory. This is what, in a sense, is what Philip is asking for. Let us see the Father in all his glory and all his splendor, and that will be enough for us. And yet when Moses pleaded with the Lord to see all of his glory, the Lord only allowed Moses to see the trail edge of the back of his glory. And look at how Jesus answers this request to this, with a question. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, I've been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. I don't know how else to say it, but that's like a mouthful. Like here, here's what's going on. And, and this is, again, this is why I'm asking the Lord, let's not get lost in the weeds and the details of it, but let's be able to see the big picture of what's going on. In Jesus' question back to Philip, where he says, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me? In other words, in this question, there's just plenty of sadness because what Jesus is alluding to is that if Jesus' opponents are not recognizing Jesus because Jesus hasn't made himself known, those closest to him, his disciples, display a similar ignorance that despite walking with Jesus, they demonstrate the same spiritual blindness. And even them following Jesus and walking with Jesus, his entire ministry doesn't guarantee insight into the truth that all of his actions and all of his words are the actions and words of the Father. And what Jesus is showing us here is the unity that exists, the relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. And later on, he's going to introduce to us the counselor, God the Holy Spirit. But, but here's what we have to understand in these words of Jesus. What he's first doing is this. He is showing us the oneness between the Father and the Son. 
And the way he does it is by telling us words that I and the Father are one. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And that describes oneness. Now, here's the confusion part, which you're probably asking the question. So is God the Father and Jesus the Son the same person? And the answer is they are united, they're one, but they're also distinct. I don't have time to explain that to you. Here's what we have to understand. What Jesus is emphasizing is not the distinction, but the oneness. So when Philip is asking for the Father, in other words, he's in a sense like thinking, okay, Jesus, you're good, and you're maybe the way, but can we just bypass the way just to see the real deal? Like, can we bypass kind of like the way that, that you might be showing and just kind of look at the destination and look at the full picture? And what Jesus is saying in sadness, in a sense, is like, don't you know me? Because if you truly knew me in all of my splendor and all of my glory, you will see the Father in me because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, I'm not just somebody you should bypass and just put to the side just so you can get to the Father. Because I and the Father are one. And this is what we have to understand. The oneness that exists between the Father and the Son without neglecting the distinction that exists between the Father and the Son. In a sense, they are united, but they're distinct. And here's where they're distinct. Think about this. For the words and works are of Jesus are given to Jesus by who? By the Father. But Jesus doesn't give the words and works to the Father. In other words, the role is not reversed here. It's not reciprocating. It is only the Father giving to the Son the words and the works, but it's not the Son that is giving to the Father the words and the works, which shows us now there is a distinction. Follow me? Okay, let me move on before I get myself in trouble. As Jesus is revealing this complex truth about, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, what is he instructing them to do? Look at verse, verse, verse uh, 11. What is he instructing them to do? Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He's instructing them, continually telling them, do what? Believe in me. If you find these words difficult to understand or you may be difficult to grasp or even difficult to believe, just believe that I and the Father are one. But then if you can't fully believe, at least believe the works that I have performed. And what Jesus is saying is he's not simply showing that the display of supernatural power frequently proves convincing, but rather that the miracles that he performed are signs that are pointing to who he is. So if they really reflected back on the life of Jesus and thoughtful meditations on all the miracles, when Jesus turned water into wine, when he multiplied the loaves, when he raised the dead, when he opened up the eyes of the blind, they weren't just supernatural displays. They were miracles that pointed to a signal, a sign. They were greater just in themselves. And that's what Jesus is saying. At least believe in what these miracles pointed to, that this is no ordinary man. That somehow he comes from the Father. He was sent by the Father. The works were given by the Father. The words were given by the Father. And now the Son is telling us that he is one in the Father. Do we fully understand it? No. But what do we do with it? We believe in it. We cling to it. And this is what he's telling them to do. He ministers to their troubled heart. And he's constantly saying, believe in God, believe in me. For believing in God is believing in me, for I and the Father are one. It's for your advantage that I'm leaving, preparing a place for you. There's ample provision. 
there is rest in my presence. I am the way because I'm the way. I am the truth of God and the life of God. Don't bypass me so you can see the Father because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he moves on and he continues to appeal for their faith, but now he gives them promises uh, for the faith. Look, Look at verse 12. I'm almost done. Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me there's our word again, will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And again, the best way to to look at the text, as you can see, I hope your minds are not hurting. Mine is. I I just got to power through. We're almost done here. Sometimes we get lost in the weeds. We kind of need to pull back like, okay, what's going on here? So what's the instructions that Jesus is telling his disciples to continually do? Believe in him. And he gives them reasons why to believe in him. But now, in a sense, what he's doing is in this, in this verse, because it almost feels like, like Jesus is all over the place. And now we're trying to figure out how does A go with B and B goes to C? Like, how does it all go together? And the best thing is to look at the big picture. He's constantly telling, believe in me. And here's the reason why you can believe in me. But now what he's doing in verses 12 to verses 14, he kind of now focuses on the promises and also the signs if you believe in me. And so here's the very first promise of those believing in him if you believe in him and here's the promise if you believe in him you will do the works of Jesus and will do even greater works than these so if you're taking notes the very first promise of believing in him is doing the works of Jesus and even doing greater works than than these in other words what Jesus is saying is here is an indicator here is a sign Here is a promise if you believe in me. What will you be doing? You'll be doing my works. And a promise you'll be even doing greater works than these. Now what in the, I like that, okay, we'll do the works of Jesus. I wish that was it, but what does he say? You'll do even greater works than these. Like, what in the world does he mean by that? Now we're going to do our homework and, like, really think about what does Jesus mean by greater works than these? Like, I don't think it means that the disciples will do more things than Jesus did. Because think about it. What's the ultimate work that Jesus has accomplished? The cross of Christ. Who can outdo that? I'm not even going to attempt to outdo it, or I don't think it can mean that our works will be more spectacular or more supernatural, because what's more spectacular and supernatural than raising the dead, healing the sick, multiplying bread, taking water, and turning it into wine? Like, you think you can outdo that? I don't think so. So what does Jesus mean by greater works than these? I think our clue is in verse 13, the second part of of verse 12, sorry. It says this, let's read the whole verse 12. Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these. And here's our clue. Why would they do greater works than these? Because I am going to the Father. So why will we be doing greater works than these? Because where's Jesus going? He's going to the Father. Now, let's put on your thinking caps. What's the way to the Father? Through the Son. But what is the Son going to do to get back to the Father? He's going to the cross. He's going to the cross. After his death, after his burial, he is going to be raised from the dead, and then he will be ascended and exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. And there's our clue. In other words, what I mean by that is that the works that the disciples will perform is going to occur when with the resurrection, before the resurrection or after the resurrection. It's going to occur after the resurrection. As it occurs after the resurrection, in a sense, their works will be greater because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Because when Jesus ministered to people, he has not died for them yet. He has, in a sense, been 
veiled. They have not fully understand. Even the disciples did not fully understand. When did the disciples fully understand that Jesus was the Son of God, He was the Messiah? Not in our text right now. It is only after He died, after He was raised, when He appeared to them, light bulbs started going off. Because before his death and resurrection, Jesus, in a sense, revealed himself, but it was veiled. That's why Paul talks about the mystery of God being revealed. Things weren't seen clearly. But now after his resurrection, not only are the disciples more fully understanding, but the Lord Jesus has been fully revealed. The redemption that he has accomplished through the cross and in a sense greater works than these as the gospel is advancing in more power and more clarity because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus means. If you believe in me, you will do the works that I'm doing. You'll actually do greater works because I'm with the Father. Because the redemption would have been accomplished. Eyes will be opened. The mystery of God's salvation will be fully revealed. For the cross, it is finished. And as a consequence, more people will be believing. The gospel will be advancing. In a sense, the gospel has been advancing for over 2,000 years. As the mystery of God has been fully revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so the benefit of, uh, of b- believing in Jesus is that you will do the works of Jesus and even greater works than these because of the cross of Christ. But then the second promise for believing in him, uh, l- look at verse, uh, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So if you're taking notes, the simplest form, the second promise of believing in him is answered prayer. Your prayers will be answered. The promise that Jesus gives us, that anything we ask in the name of Jesus, it will be given to us. Now, let me give you a little footnote. That does not mean that the promise to answer prayer should elicit prayers for health, wealth and happiness because again let's look at the entire verse 13 whatever you ask in my name i will do it so that the father may be glorified in the son what is the purpose of the answered prayer for his glory not for your glory but for his glory But what we also have to understand when Jesus is saying is praying in my name, he's not saying using the secret words of in Jesus' name I pray, but rather what that phrase means is when we align ourselves to the will of God. And what is the will of God? The glory of God. As we align ourselves not to our own glory, but to his glory and to his will, what's the promise to our prayers? The Lord will answer it. The Lord will give it to us. Like, how awesome is that? That the creator of the universe is promising us to answer our prayers, even in times of good or in times of trouble, that when we align ourselves to his will and to his glory, he's not going to ignore it because he's so busy, but rather he is promising to answer it. And before he answers it, that means he hears it that means he's paying attention to it and even for us at times we're frustrated when we feel like the lord is not answering our prayer well then the question we can ask ourselves is is my prayer aligned with the will of god or maybe he's answering my prayer just not in the way i thought he should answer the prayer but did he not promise he's going to answer it so these is the encouragement that Jesus gives to his disciples. Let's, let's wrap it all together and then draw some personal application. Again, let's, let's zoom out from the text. What's going on? Jesus ministering to his disciples. His disciples were troubled. They're freaking out. Life is not going the way they thought it should be going. Anybody can relate to that? What are you doing at right now? 
you're freaking out. I think we're all freaking out a little bit. We drive by the gas station and we're freaking out a little bit. Let's just be honest. We watch the headlines and we need to stop doing it because we're just freaking out a little bit. Our hearts are troubled. What in the world is going on? And Jesus comes and he ministers to his disciples. And what instruction, what encouragement does he give them? What does he say? Believe in me. Believe in me. Trust me. Because what I'm doing is for your advantage. I'm preparing a place for you through the cross. There's lots of room for you. And it's going to be in my presence forever. This world and what's going on is temporary. I'm not twirling my thumbs, pretending I don't know what I'm doing. I have worked for you. My work on the cross is finished for you. I'm coming back for you so that you may be with me forever. That's the encouragement he's giving his disciples to believe in him. And I think that's the encouragement he's giving us. How do, you, how do we deal with all the craziness? We do what? What does Jesus tell us to do? Believe in him. What is he doing right now? He is working. He is our great high priest. He is our mediator, interceding on our behalf, sitting at the right hand of the Father, preparing a place for us. There's plenty of room for all of you. It is going to be a glorious rest because it will be in the presence of God. Believe in him. He continually tells his disciples, believe in me because I'm the way to God. Because I am the truth of God and the life of God. Tells us, why can we believe in Jesus? Because he is the way to God. And the reason why he's the way to God, because he is the truth of God and the life of God. That everything he says and does comes from where? God. He and the Father is one. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. So when we look to Jesus, God fully reveals himself to us. We can believe in him even when we don't fully understand it. And then he gives us the promises. As he gives the disciples the promises. That if you believe in me, you will continue to do the work that I've done. And you will do even greater work than these. And so what do we do? Not only do we believe in Jesus, but what it doesn't mean is we just sit on our hands and believe in him. But what do we do as we believe in him? We do the works of him with a promise that we will do even greater works than these. Why? Because of the finished work of the cross. Redemption has been accomplished. The veil has been torn. The mystery has been revealed. Let's go and make him known, saying that he is the way to God because he is the truth of God and the life of God. And the ultimate promise in our work of Jesus as we believe in Jesus is that when we align ourselves to his will, which we will automatically do if we do his work and we believe in him, that he will answer our prayer. So what's the application for us? Like when we find ourselves in this season, which I, I don't know about you, there's just so much uncertainty. We don't know whether we're coming or going. Every headline, everything almost seems like, you've got to be kidding me. This is a joke. This is not real. Like, let's not get under our rock here, but let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's look at him, believe in him, that he is actively working right now for our advantage. Later on, I think John 15 or 16, he says that it's to your advantage that I'm leaving you because when I leave, you will receive the counselor, the comforter. And who do we have? We have the counselor and the comforter. And so what we're supposed to do in this times of uncertainty is to continually to look to him, believe in him. And as we believe in him, we do the work of him, making himself known to the world, to the nations. Letting them know, look, the only way to God is Jesus. Because he is the truth of God and the life of God. Everything he says and does is from God. So that when he speaks and when he acts 
It is God speaking and God acting. Life is only found in him. Apart from him, there's only death. Let's look to him. Let's trust to him. As the author of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on him. The author and the perfecter of our faith. Let us throw off all these things that are just hindering us and entangling us and let us run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on him. And that's the instructions he gave his disciples and that's the instructions he's giving us today when we find our hearts troubled. Believe in him. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, can you help us to believe? Well, can you help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith? Can you help us to throw off the things that are entangling us, ensnaring us, and distracting us? Can you help us to fix our eyes on the prize and run this race with endurance? Lord, you know our hearts. You know what we're going through. You know some of the challenges that we're facing. God, you even know the challenges that we're going to face. Lord, I am so grateful that you are the answer to our troubled hearts. That in our times of trouble, we have you. And even the promise that you've given us, you will be with us forever. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Can you help us, Lord, as we look to you? As we continue to pray, I think maybe it's time for examination. What are you keeping your eyes on in this time of uncertainty, in this time of trouble? What's your hope in? Who are you believing in? Who are you trusting? I think maybe an honest question to ask is, am I believing in Jesus? That he is the only way to God because he is the truth of God and the life of God. Am I fixing my eyes on him or am I fixing my eyes on myself? As we get ready to sit at the table, it's just another reminder of why we can believe in Jesus. Because what the table reminds us of is what he's accomplished for us. It's a shadow of heaven where we as the people of God get to sit and eat in the presence of God. Not because of what we've done or how we've performed, but because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. This is why we can come and his body is given to us, his blood was shed for us, the new covenant we have in him. And we are reminded this wonderful benefit that we have is because of Jesus Christ. And it helps us reorient our eyes, our minds, because we are a people, I don't know about you, but, but, but I am quick, easy to get distracted to take my eyes off Christ to believe in self or to believe in the system or even to believe in some of you in my heart as troubled. And yet what Jesus is telling me and teaching me is, no, believe in me because I am the only way to God. I am the only one that reveals the truth of God and the life of God. Fix your eyes on me. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for us to to, to fix our eyes on him, to be reminded of the benefits we have in Christ, the work he's accomplished for us on the cross. And maybe for some of you, maybe you do not believe in Jesus yet. 
think this is a wonderful opportunity for you not to take the elements and participate with us, but rather for you to, to do some meditation and reflection. Am I trusting him as my Lord and Savior? Do I recognize I even need a Lord and Savior? Or am I the own ma master of my own faith, the captain of my own ship, trying to navigate through this difficult way, only to find myself crashing into the rocks of life? And so use this opportunity to look to him, to trust in him, knowing that he died for you, took all of your sins upon himself, paid your debt in full, satisfied God's wrath for eternity, so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in all of your imperfections and all of your sin, but he sees you as perfect, he sees you as righteous, not because of your righteousness, but rather the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed upon you. The great exchange that took place, your sin for his righteousness. So as we get ready to distribute these elements, let's meditate on these truths of why we can fix our eyes on Jesus, how he is the answer to our troubled hearts and the work that he has accomplished for us and the work that he is doing as a great high priest, preparing a place for us and then the promises that are waiting for us. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that the Lord and his sovereignty when he instituted his supper, maybe he had in mind that throughout history that his people would have troubled hearts. And he doesn't ignore our troubled hearts. He doesn't say, hey, pretend it doesn't exist, but rather he enters into it and he ministers to us. And in a sense, what he says is, hey, look at me. Believe in me. Be reminded of my body that is given to you eat of it, feast on it, and be nourished by it. Here's my blood that was shed for you, that washed you and made you as white as snow, the new covenant that you have in me. Drink it in remembrance of me. And so in your times of trouble, believe in him. The work that he has accomplished on your behalf and the work that he's doing for you right now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful cross. We thank you for all the promises that we have in you. We thank you that you do not ignore our troubled hearts, but that you enter into the space of our troubled hearts and you minister to us by helping us not get distracted by the worries of this world, but to fix our eyes on you. And Lord, can you help us? Can you help us in times of distractions look to you? Can you help us in times of trouble to trust in you, even though when we don't fully understand everything? Can you help us to cling to the promises that we have in you and all the benefits that we get to share in you? We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.